Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, January the 19th, 2022. It is currently 2.37 p.m. Central Time. And once again, I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, located right here in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And once again, we're going to turn our attention to the book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Now, yesterday I started with basically saying, what in the name of bubblegum is Thomas Kempis talking about? What, what in the world is Thomas Kempis talking about at the beginning of chapter six of book two? And the reason I was like, what in the name of bubblegum is he talking about is because he makes a statement in my copy of the book. They give a scripture reference. And if you look up that scripture reference, it doesn't have anything to do with the subject he introduces in this chapter. Someone has possibly solved that mystery, but we still have another thing that I tend to say, what in the name of bubblegum are you talking about? And that is whenever I hear Christians talk about the subject that Thomas Akempis introduces in this chapter. Does any of that make sense? Does it? Let let me put it all together so that you know exactly where we are, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. We're in chapter six of book two of the very famous book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, written over 500 years ago. In chapter six of book two of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, when you open it up, You will see this for a title or something similar to this title in most editions of the book, no matter which one you may have. You're going to, if it gives chapter titles, some, some copies of the book don't even give chapter titles. They'll just have a number like chapter six with no title. So if you have one that actually has a, a chapter title, it's probably going to say something like this. Are you ready? Here we go. The joy of a good conscience. So in chapter six of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, we are introduced to the subject of conscience, to the topic of conscience. And just that alone makes me start saying, what in the name of bubblegum are people talking about? Because as I've already said, so many times when I hear Christians start talking about conscience or I can't do this because I can't go against my conscience— I, I I sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with you, have to stop and go, I wonder how much time they've actually spent in any serious study of the subject of conscience. I wonder if they've really looked at it from a truly biblical, theological point of view. Have they really thought it through? Because in some in some cases, it seems that their discussion of conscience seems to deny other doctrines like, I don't know, total depravity. And so it, it's really it's really bizarre sometimes when I hear Christians talk about it. So immediately when I open a chapter that starts with that, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. We're going to have to talk about conscience. We're really going to have to establish a theological understanding of conscience so we have any ability to actually interpret this chapter. But not only that, we're going to have to have a an understanding of a specific theological perspective on this subject, and that would be the Roman Catholic perspective. And the reason we have to do that is because Thomas Akempis was a Catholic monk. So that 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 that's going to make sense. So that's why I have right here next to me the Catholic Catechism, 
which we started looking into. But remember, the, the thing that really started off some confusion is right after that title, we read these words. This is basically sentence one of the chapter. The glory of a good man is the testimony of a good conscience. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 31. Well, if you have a Bible and you go to first Corinthians chapter one, <laughs> verse 31, you're going to read these words. This is first Corinthians chapter one, verse 31. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And if you look up every English translation on earth, none of them mentions conscience. It doesn't have anything to do with conscience. So what in the name of bubblegum is Thomas Akempis or Thomas Kemp? I just, I, Thomas Akempis is the way I think I earlier said Thomas Kempis, but Thomas Akempis, uh, what in the world was he talking about? Now, obviously I can't call him. I can't email him. I can't text him. I can't contact him because, well, that this was written over 500 years ago. So what in the world? Well, we, we started, I started looking around and I did this yesterday live on the air. I went to an actual Catholic website and their copy of The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And guess what they did? They removed any scripture reference there. They just have the sentence, the glory of a good man is the testimony of a good conscience. And they remove the reference to 1 Corinthians 131. They, they, they don't have that there in parentheses. They just removed it completely. All right. So that, so th does that mean Thomas Akempis, well, I mean, how did this reference get in here? Did it get into this edition? Did Thomas Akempis write it in some manuscript in the past, but he, he miswrote the reference? Like it's, it would be hard to track down exactly why this reference got into this copy of the book. But a listener contacted me and said, it's not first Corinthians one thirty one. In fact, he showed me a screenshot of the of the copy of the book that he's reading and it wasn't 1 Corinthians 1 uh, 1 it wasn't 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 31 it was 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12 so if we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12 we read these words for our rejoicing is this the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. All right, that actually mentions conscience. That actually has something to do with that reference in the book. So clearly it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Now we could spend some time taking apart 2 Corinthians 1, 12, but what I want, I don't want to get distracted and I don't want to take a detour right here. I want us to stay focused on this su the subject of conscience. What is conscience? How should we think about conscience? How should we talk about it? What should our understanding be as Bible-believing Christians? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to try to listen to me work through the Catholic teaching, and then we'll offer my critique and offer my thoughts and try when it's all said and done to say, okay, here's what I think a biblical perspective of conscience should be. And we started that in the, in the last episode. We started that, but we're going to continue because I really want us to understand this. Now, I, I know what I could do. I could just say, well, he mentions conscience. We think that's the scripture reference. 
okay? The glory of a good man is the testimony of a good conscience, okay? So yeah, the glory of a good man is their, is their good conscience, all right? Everybody got that? And we could just move on to the next, to the next paragraph. Have a good conscience and you shall ever have joy. A good conscience is able to bear much and is very joyful in adversities. An evil conscience is always fearful and restless. So you should try to have a good conscience as opposed to an evil conscience because a good, conf- a good conscience will bring about joy and an evil conscience is going to be bring about fear and restlessness. And I could pretty much articulate that. Maybe try to offer some examples or illustrations of that perspective and then just immediately move on. I could do that, but I think when I do that, everyone will take their current understanding of conscience and just insert that understanding into what Thomas Akempis is saying and move on possibly with an erroneous flawed view of conscience. So I believe I have a responsibility to, since I have a microphone and I have this platform to say, hey, time out, everyone, time out. I know we want to finish the book. I know we want to move forward. But what's the point of moving through the book if we skip such an important topic that I think contains a topic that has been subjected to so much misunderstanding? And I think a lot of that misunderstanding is to be blamed at pastors in churches who I don't think have really ever dug into this subject in a meaningful way. And when I say churches, I'm not saying every single church, but I think many have a very, just a very surface level understanding of this subject. And I think it, it's just feel, I think in many cases, it just leads to so much misunderstanding. I said this yesterday, if I had people currently in this room, I would be tempted to say, okay, everyone, grab a piece of paper, grab a pencil, I'm just going to sit up here in the front pew for like 30 minutes. You have 30 minutes to write out everything you you can articulate about the theology of conscience, the doctrine of conscience, what it is, what it isn't, what it does, what it doesn't do. Can you trust it? Can you not trust it? What makes one good? What makes one evil? Go. And then at the end of the 30 minutes, grab everyone's paper and just start reading them. Like literally, like it'd be interesting just to grab them and then turn on the microphone and just start reading them. It would be fascinating to see what I, what I would get. I think it would be, it would be fascinating, but in some cases it would be horrifying because I think many Christians would just write down things that are completely flawed. And in some cases, I don't blame them because they haven't been taught. In other cases, they'd still bear responsibility because it's 2022. They have access to books and books and books written on the subject. So they could have obviously explored the topic whenever they wanted to. They just, just in many cases, Christians don't seem to have a desire to want to. And it's almost like conscience. Now, listen to me. I know I'm going to offend some people. It seems to me conscience typically is almost used as a tool in order to let you do what you want to do or to avoid doing something you don't want to do. It's like, okay, okay, I don't want to do that. Oh, that would be against my conscience. Well, I can't do that. It would go against my conscience. Well, I want to do this, but uh, I know a lot of people are telling me it wrong, but hey, my conscience doesn't feel any guilt, so, so it can't be wrong, so I can do it. And whenever we just like, it's almost like, an, you know, we have a card up our sleeve. Or, oh man, there's something I don't want to do. Conscience, boom. Oh, wait, I really want to do that. I know everyone tells me bad. Well, my conscience doesn't bother. Just play the conscience card. 
Just throw that conscience card on the table and you're like, boom, I win. Jackpot. Give me all the chips. I, I, and I, it can't be just, just some random card we can play to get what we want or to avoid doing something we don't want to do. I just think that that is majorly problematic. And let's be honest with ourselves. That is clearly a danger, right? Because we're sinners. And as sinners, there's things we don't want to do. So we'll look for a reason to do it. And there are times we want to do something and we will justify the action, even though it's wrong, because that's what we do as sinners. So if we can get some kind of a theological, doctrinal, biblical concept like conscience, and then we can use it, well, then conscience, the very concept of conscience could become really a spiritual pitfall if you've been participating in our Bible study exercise this week where we've been talking about spiritual pitfalls. I haven't even considered this, but can conscience be a spiritual pitfall? In other words, something that doesn't look dangerous. It's like, it's like there's the pitfall, but it's camouflaged. It looks safe. I mean, conscience, that's a, that's a important concept. People in church history have mentioned it. The Bible mentions it conscience. And we're like, okay, here it is. But without even knowing it, it just simply becomes a pitfall because we use it really trying to use it for our own advantage to either keep us from doing what we should do or allowing us to do that, which we should not do. So I I think we really need to talk about the subject. So we did a couple of things. First, I know when I say we... we, (laughs) It's ridiculous at 13 minutes to say first because we've already covered a number a number of factors. But let's go to, so I won't call it first. Let's first go, okay, Let, I won't say first. Let's now turn our attention to a basic definition of conscience. Conscience is described or is defined as an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. That's a basic definition of conscience. An inner feeling, I just want to stop right here. An inner feeling. That is, if you don't see the danger right there, if you don't see a problem right there, then I don't even know, I don't even know what to tell you. From a biblical perspective, whenever I hear an inner feeling, my theology of, of men, my theology of human beings tells me that what's inside of us is sinful. We have a sinful nature. We are depraved. We have a heart that's deceptive above all things, that we are sinners. So as soon as I talk about an inner feeling, immediately the question I would have is, well, how much can you trust that inner feeling? What if your conscience is telling you, no, it's okay to do that. Can you trust it? What if your uh, conscience is telling you, no, you can't do that. Can you trust it? How much can you trust your conscience? Now, if you, if you offer any doubt to trusting it, if you offer, even if if you say, well, I can trust it 70%, 60%, unless you can say I can trust it a hundred percent, then I think you have to agree with me. We've got a problem, right? In other words, if I can't trust it a hundred percent, then should I trust it at all? How much should you rely on conscience when making a decision or determining if you feel guilty or don't feel what 
I think we need something outside of us because anything inside of us is corrupted by our sinful nature. So we shouldn't trust anything in us. We have to have something external to us. And that's what I believe right here is the word of God and why we need it. So the fact that it's an inner feeling is already to me problematic. Now I know I'm going to get Christians go, wait a minute, but it's a biblical concept. I know. Well, even if if it's a biblical concept and if it does equal to be an inner feeling, then you've got to bring up all the other biblical concepts that talk about the sinfulness of human beings. And then you have to go, well, wait a minute. If it's in me and inside me is sin, then that means that inner feeling is not necessarily going to be an accurate, you know, an accurate compass that I should follow. It's not going to be an accurate indicator of what I should or shouldn't do. But but let's continue. Let's continue. It's an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. So it's an inner feeling that should serve as a guide. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, I, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. That's just absolutely the worst thing I've ever heard of from a theological perspective. I'm going to trust this inner voice as a guide to whether something is right or wrong. And it's my conscience. Yeah, that, that seems problematic. That's the, the way the dictionary defines it. Now, if you go to a site like Theopedia, Theopedia, which gives you theological definitions, um, if I can find Theopedia, here it is. You get a very interesting, like in, if you look up anything else on Theopedia, anything else, what will, you get like these long, like paragraphs of definition, explanation. But if you look up conscience on Theopedia, you don't get any of that. Here's what you get. You look up Theopedia, you look up the, uh, you go to Theopedia.com, look up conscience. This is what, this is all that you get. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witnesses and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Romans 2, 14. Then it gives all of these relevant passages, 1 Samuel, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews. They have all of these passages of scripture. They offer no explanation. They offer no definition. They don't offer anything, which I think is very important. But I love the fact that they reference Romans 2.14 because here, now just hear me out. Here's my thesis. I think our conscience, basically, I, I understand our conscience is being made up of really two realities. First, I'm created in the image of God. Because I'm created in the image of God, I am a moral being. A sense of morality is built into me because I'm created in the image of a moral being. God is a moral being. He believes some, he, he declares, he doesn't believe, he declares some things are right and some things is wrong. Some things is good, some things as evil. So therefore, I am born with this just indwelling idea inside of me that some, that that there is a morality. There are some things that are right. There are some things that are wrong. Some things are fair. Some things are unfair. It's just built into my DNA. That's how come children are very young and they'll be like, that's not right. That's not fair. They have some sense of justice, of wrong, of right 
built into them. That's because we're created in the image of God. So the sense of morality is because we we were created in the image of God. So no matter where you go in the world, no matter how atheistic the society is, no matter if they reject God outright, no matter if they could believe in complete materialism, they will still say, well, that's not right. That's not wrong. That's not evil. Even when they argue against God, they'll say, well, how could a good God allow for such evil? Well, now you've just declared something to be good and something to be evil on the basis of what? Because there's something inside of them that when they see certain behavior, they're like, that's just wrong. That's because we're, we, that, that we are created in the image of God. So we all have a sense of morality. And I think that's a part of quote unquote conscience. The second part I think is very important is the law of God has been written on the human heart. It's been written on the human heart. So we have God's law there. Now, this is very important. Conscience, therefore, gives us the sense of morality. Now, because of our depravity, we don't have a, a correct under our views of morality. Can, we have a sense of morality, but we may call something evil that's good and something good that's evil. We have a sense of morality, but it's all messed up because of our depravity. God's law is written on our heart. So we have even a, a, a very, we have this sense that certain things are wrong, but because of our sinful nature, that, that, that law being written on the heart is almost pushed down, rejected, and its voice is muted because we reject God's law. So in other words, we have, we are, we have a sense of morality. We have God's law written on our hearts, but that is not an accurate guide. It's not. We've got to find something because our, our emotions and feelings and depravity is all there inside of us as well. So we need something external. So to me, a good conscience is a conscience that leads you in the direction, not of the inner feeling, but of God's external word. My, my conscience is good if it's leading me in the direction of God's written word. My conscience is evil if it's leading me against God's word. So the way I, I, the way I need to make my ultimate decision is not on the inner feeling, but on God's external word. Con and, and my conscience will become more sensitive and will push me and warn me the more I feed my conscience with the word of God. In other words, the word of God is absolutely essential for the conscience of being any value. That is my hypothesis and that is my theory. And I think Romans 2.14, if I said revelation, I apologize. Romans 2.14, I think it's it's just critical to this. Now, I know I'm doing a lot of repeating this, but I just, I want my thesis and hypothesis to just be as clear as I can be and, and, and my challenges to the whole subject. So when I hear someone say, well, I, you know, my conscience, my conscience, I'm like, your conscience, what? How about this? You're a Christian, right? Yeah. Well, how about this? Stop listening for some inner voice to tell you what to do and open up your Bible and determine what the Bible says. That's what's reliable. All right, so it makes sense to me. All right, now, with all of that said, now we're going to go back to the Catholic Catechism. Now, again, why? Thomas Akempis is Catholic, was Catholic, Catholic monk. 
So when he refers to conscience, he understands that obviously he's using it from a Catholic perspective. So what is the Catholic teaching on conscience? Well, let's see. I'm on page 438, paragraph 1776. This begins, this section is Article 6 on moral conscience. Here we go. Deep within his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. Now, I want to make it very clear. Yeah, I do believe in our conscience. Our conscience is made up of God's law. That's what we find in our conscience, a law that we didn't put there. Now, it says that we must obey it. Now, we can get into an argument. I will, I will argue we, we can't obey it because of our depravity. God's law, we can never obey perfectly, correctly, or right or rightly. So we're always going to, in a sense, be going against our conscience because our conscience is made up of God's law written on our hearts, and we're always going to violate it in some way, shape, or form. That's why we need Christ. So it's going to constantly remind us of our guilt. It's voice ever calling him to love and to do what is good and to avoid evil sounds in his heart at the right moment. For man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. His conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. Now, I do believe the law is there. I do believe it's there. And I believe that it may tell you that's wrong, that's right. It gives you a sense of guilt. It gives you a sense of morality, a sense of right. But our depravity messes it up and our our rejecting God's word leads us to a confused conscience at best. And then you add in that we're dead in our trespasses and sins before salvation. You just, you add all of the rest of the teaching of depravity. Conscience does very little at that point. Now, once someone is saved, what does conscience do? Well, it's there, it's there. But remember, the the strength of the conscience is how much it is fed what the word of God, which is written on the heart. You've got to continue. Your conscience is limited by how much you feed it the word of God. I I think that's very, very, very important uh, to to understand. I think that's very important to understand, but let's see where, where they go, all right? So let's move on, right? I know that took much longer than I wanted, but that's okay. The judgment of conscience. Here we go. Paragraph 1777. Moral conscience present at the heart of the person and joins him at the appropriate moment to do good and to avoid evil. Now stop right here. Now I begin to have, I begin to question this. Now we could go through the history of Catholicism, but we know that especially by the time you get to the Council of Trent, semi-Pelagian views begin to dominate much of Catholic theology, right? They almost begin to deny, in many cases, the concept of total depravity in any meaningful way. And even if they believe in total depravity in any meaningful way, even if you try to claim that they do, well, then they believe magically you put water on a baby eight days after their birth and boom, then then somehow that depravity is done away with original sin is somehow washed away and that they they almost then almost i won't say go with a complete eradication of the old nature but they begin to lessen the reality of the old nature in many ways okay i know i'm I'm, I'm oversimplifying some of that but definitely a semi-pelagian view begins to dominate especially from the council of trent preceding the council of trent moving forward and i think it's very much present there today so i say all of that 
Because when I when they say the moral conscience is present at the heart of the person and joins him at the appropriate moment to do good and to do evil and to avoid evil, I have to I have to say I have to raise my hand and go, wait a minute. So are you saying every person, every person, even without salvation, they have this conscience that that just speaks up at the very moment, boom, that they need it. And it says, hey, 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 it's time to do good and it's time to avoid evil. That every person just has this. Clearly, I will argue the conscience, they have a sense of morality. That there is a, there is a sense of right and wrong in them, but they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And that the, the, the conscience is seared and marred and in many cases almost silenced by that sinful nature. There's still a sense of wrong and right deep in them, but I don't know if it just shows up at the right time. And and even you got to even be careful how you say that in re, even in regards to Christians, you're saying, so there's a Christian, they get ready to do, and, and, and conscience just immediately says, hey, 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 don't do that, do good. Well, then you would have to argue, why do Christians continue to sin? But they go on. It also judges particular choices approving those that are good and denouncing those that are evil. It bears witness to the authority of truth and reference to the supreme good to which the human person is drawn. And it, and it welcomes the commandments. When he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. Now, I, I got a million problems with this. So, so if you listen to your conscience, you can hear God speaking. Let me, the problem is you can't, this is such this weird, like it just drives me crazy. It, all of that sounds so good, right? And it preaches good, but in practical reality, it's, it's about as useless as useless can be. All right. It's like, just try to hear me out. All right, everyone. What I want you to know is that God has given you conscience. And if you'll listen to your conscience, you'll hear the voice of God. You'll hear God speaking. So listen to your conscience. Now, how do you do this? You've got to look, look inward. You got to listen, look, you got to, you got to try to interpret a feeling. You got to try to interpret whether it's guilt or approval. And then you, and oh, that's God. Well, that almost gives you the idea that you can determine right and wrong by looking inward. By looking to how you feel. Do you understand how utterly foolish that is? If I look in to try to determine right and wrong by how I feel, I guarantee you from a spiritual standpoint, you're going to drive your spiritual car right off the road, right over the cliff, and you're going to crash at the bottom and, um, and a, some dramatic action movie explosion. You're going to make a, it's going to be a complete car wreck. It's going to be a dumpster fire. You can't look inward to go, I'm listening for God's voice to tell me if this is right or if this is wrong. You've got all your, all the stuff going on inside of you. You've got your own desires. You've got your feelings. You've got your psychological makeup. You've got past experiences. You've got desires and dreams and hopes and you've got pressures on everyone. You've got all kinds of things just bouncing around inside of you. And one of the big things bouncing around inside of you also is, I don't know, sin. 
So why would I look inward to hear the voice of God? Why would I look, okay, listen for my conscience. No, 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 no. I don't want to look inward. I want to look outward. God's word outside of me. And hopefully when I open up my Bible, I, I don't listen to all of that inward stuff bouncing around inside of me. And I simply try to interpret the words on the page based off the rules on how to interpret the words on the page. If I don't do that, it just becomes this relativistic nonsense. I mean, just listen to that again. It bears witness to the authority of truth and reference to the supreme good to which the human person is drawn. And it welcomes the commandments. When he listens to his conscience, the prudent man can hear God speaking. Now, I think, I think if you, I think if you acknowledge, here's what I would do. If we acknowledge conscience, it may give testimony to the existence of God. It may give testimony to the existence of some kind of moral standard. It may give some existence to the fact, or it may give some testimony to the fact that I'm created in the image of a moral being, but I can't necessarily, it, put it this way, if it's God's voice, it's not going to be clearly heard because it's going to be, it's going to be muddied and drowned out by all of the other garbage inside of me. Next paragraph, 1778. Conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. So I want you to hear this. According to this, conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality. So now this is me judging me. So I get, so because of conscience, I can recognize the moral quality. I'm going to read this. Uh, um, The moral quality of an act, of a concrete act that I'm going to perform. So I'm getting ready to do this. Well, my conscience doesn't seem to say it's a bad idea. So therefore I, I, I can recognize the moral quality of it. It's not condemning me. So it must be good. Um, or I'm in the process of performing it. I'm right there in the process of, of committing the act. I don't feel guilty. That, therefore, it's got to be good. Or that he's uh, uh, the, the, of a, of an act that he's going to perform and the process of performing or has already completed. So, so conscience tells me, okay, what you're getting ready to do, hey, you're good to go. Hey, hey, you're in the process of committing it right now. Hey, you're good to go. You're good. You've already completed. Well, I don't feel bad about it. Well, then guess what? You're good to go. That is not to me biblical Christianity in any way, shape, or form. This is just, it becomes moral relativism. It becomes basically doing what is right in your own eyes. I've been spending uh, the day looking at a big, a lot of controversy surrounding the January the 6th, you know, Capitol riots and uh, some conspiracy theories surrounding it. And I'm still trying to debate what I should or shouldn't do in regards to covering it or talking about it. But I bet you there's plenty of people who were there on January the 6th at the Capitol or, or at Trump's rally, getting ready to march down to the Capitol. And their conscience told them, hey, what you're about to do, like maybe they already knew they were going to break through the barriers and enter into the Capitol and scream, traitor, traitor, or stop the steal or whatever they're going to start yelling and screaming. Their conscience may have told them, you're what you're doing is right. 
what you're doing is, is good. What you're doing is okay. Did that make their actions okay? Again, it's it, the conscience is played almost like this get out of free jail card. Hey, what you did was wrong. Well, you are telling me it's wrong, but my conscience did not tell me I was it was wrong when I was getting ready to do it, as I was doing it, or even now it doesn't tell me that I'm wrong. Now you could say, you could argue, well, I bet you deep down that it is, but you you can't that's you now trying to argue against someone else trying to interpret their conscience. Why? I don't even understand why we would even look to this. <laughs> what does the scripture say? That's what I look to. Anything else I look to is just, it's about as, it's about as useless as trying to read and interpret your horoscope. It's just like, that is the most, that's the craziest words I've ever heard. So conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he's going to perform is in the process of performing or has already completed. And all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. It is by the judgment of his conscience that a man perceives and recognizes the prescriptions of the divine law. Well, that's that's seemingly the thing that that it almost treats the conscience. Now, listen to what I'm going to say here. It almost treats conscience. As an infallible magisterium, not living in the Vatican, but living inside of you. And I will tell you, there's nothing inside of you infallible. I will tell you, there is nothing inside of you that you should listen to, to judge whether your actions were right and wrong. There is nothing inside of you that you should even hope to, to even look to. That's why we need scripture. That's why we need a, a transcendent ex, a God outside of us. They go on to place, they have this, uh, where is this a quote from? Uh, they're going to quote from uh, John Henry Cardinal Newman, um, a letter to the Duke of Norfolk, okay? Um, and this is, this is what is stated here, right? They have it in, uh, this is a quote, a, a block quote. Conscience is a law of the mind, yet Christians would not grant that it is nothing more. I mean that it was not a dictate nor conveyed the notion of responsibility of duty of, okay, let me read this again. Conscience is a law of the mind, yet Christians would not grant that it is nothing more. I mean that it was not a dictate nor conveyed the notion of responsibility, of duty, of a threat, and a promise. Conscience is a messenger of him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil and teaches and rules by his representatives. Conscience is the vicar of Christ. That... That is an interesting, the, the, the conscience is basically the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Now, I'm going to look something up here really quick. Because I, I, man, 
this, this, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I have massive issues with this subject. I have so many issues with this subject. Okay, hang on. I'm going to look something up here. I want to make sure that I don't misrepresent something. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, okay. So, um, vicar of Christ is a term used in different ways and, w- and with different theological connotations throughout history. The original notion of vicar is an earthly representative of Christ. So, in a sense, and if you just look up vicar of Christ, it's a title of the Pope. So, in a sense, the conscience is the, like, earthly representative of Christ. It's the, it's like the Pope. So, in a sense, inside of you sits the vicar of Christ, sits the Pope, and, of course, is then is it an infallible guide? And I'm going to, I'm going to look up another word here. I'm going to look up another word. Um because I want to make sure. I'm going to make sure I get this right. Yeah, I think it's going to immediately come up that. Yeah, conscience. All right. Uh, yeah. So it, it's, there's uh, the, ab- the aboriginal vicar of Christ. If you just look that up, it, it shows up everywhere. And, um, that it's, that it's referring to conscience. I want to make sure, I wanted to make sure that other Catholic sites would agree with that. And, uh, okay, yes. So in a sense, the, the this word, here's the word. Aboriginal. Aboriginal, aboriginal. Uh, I'm looking it up. It means inhabiting or existing in a land from the earliest times or from before the arrival of colonists. Indigenous. So in a sense, the, the, the human conscience is the aboriginal, it's the indigenous pope. It's, it's the first pope. The first pope is your conscience. It's the vicar of Christ. It's inside of you sitting upon, you, you see how dangerous this, this, this just seems maddening to me. Well, why do I, from a Catholic theological perspective, then why do I need the pope in Rome? If I've got the pope inside of me, I've got the original pope inside of me. I mean, I'm going to read this again. Conscience is a messenger of him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil and teaches and rules by his representatives. Conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. That is literally on page 439 of the Catholic Catechism. I, 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 I am not a fan of this in any way, shape, or form. I, I, not only might I reject the Catholic teaching, I think the Catholic teaching has had profound impact on how even many Protestants consider and talk about conscience. Well, hey, you should do that. Nope, nope, nope. I can't do that because it'd be going against my conscience. So, uh, so you can't tell me to do it. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, first of all, that's your inner feeling. How do you know that inner feeling is right? Well, it's my conscience. So your conscience always gives you an accurate, infallible guide? That's how many Protestants speak of it. They speak of it in a very Catholic way. I My belief is I'm so sinful inside, right, 
that I need something outside that I can look to because I can't trust anything in me. And the thing I definitely cannot trust is my feelings. And conscience is nothing more than a feeling. Back to the catechism. It is important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience. So it's important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of of his conscience. I guess that means it's important for every person to be like in tune with himself so that you can hear, and please note, not just hear it, they want you to follow your your conscience. You need to hear it and you need to follow it. The requirements of interiority is is all the more necessary as life often distracts us from any reflection, self-examination, or introspection. In other words, what you need is you need to have, Thomas Akempis refers to this a number of times, this interior life. You've got to, you've got to, you're distracted by all the external things. So you need to spend some time looking inward. You got to look inward because that's how you can hear your conscience. It's how you can determine what you need to do that can determine right and wrong. And so they mentioned uh, uh, self-examination and introspection. Return to your conscience, question it, turn inward, brethren, and ev- and in everything you do, see God as your witness. That is a quote from St. Augustine. Let me read that again. Return to your conscience, question it, turn inward, brethren, and in everything you do, see God as your witness. I, I would, if someone said, what should I do? Don't look inward. <laughs> Don't look inward. Look outward. <laughs> look to the word of God. I look inward. Here's what I do. I will tell you to look inward to see what's really going on, to be honest about what's going on, right? You got to look inward, not to find answers. You got to look inward to see, man, I really do want that. I really do think that. Like you look inward to see the reality of your depravity and your sin. I don't look inward for direction, guidance, and to determine what's right and wrong. No, if I look when, when you're like, there's danger, there's danger. There's someone out trying to kill me. There's someone out there. I think they're trying to kill me. Well, where are they at? Where are they at? Hey, hey, we, 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 we trace the call. Oh yeah. Where, where's the person at? They're calling from inside the house. Wait, what? Yes. They're inside your house. You need to get out. Now the killer is inside the house. Well, guess what? The killer is inside of you. You know, don't go looking inwardly is like in a horror movie going down the basement. You try to flick on the light. The light doesn't work. But for some weird reason, you're still going to walk down the basement and the the dramatic music should be a dead giveaway. Don't go down there, but you're going to walk all the way down in the basement. Pitch black. You can't see anything. Oh, and you're separated from all your friends, but you're still going to go down in the basement. To me, looking inwardly for answers is like going down in the basement where the serial killer is waiting for you. That's the last thing I'm going to trust. I need to look inwardly to acknowledge all of the dirt that's there so that I can really see, man, maybe my motivations are not as pure as I thought. Maybe Maybe my action here really, maybe it's really not that good because if you look inwardly and you're honest, 
you're going to see all the dirt. In other words, if you look inwardly and you're honest, it's like turning the light on in the basement and seeing the serial killer standing there. But this idea, then just look inward. Look inward. That's where the uh, the aboriginal vic, vicar of Christ sits. The Pope is right there waiting to give you direction, to give you his infallible, you know, dogma. That is, that is absolutely the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard from my theological perspective. My theological perspective is where, look, I'll just give you an example. Forget what I think. Let's see if this person knows anything, what he's talking about. I mean, he may, he may not have a clue, but let's, let's just see what he has to say. All right. Let's see what uh, we have to uh, see here. Um, how far back do we want to go? All right. Um, let's go to uh, Romans chapter seven, verse 14. Let's just see, because this guy who wrote this, he could be absolutely crazy. Oh, wait, the guy who wrote this wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's see what he has to say. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For for what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Hey, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So he goes on to describe how bad of situation he is. And then he says this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then look at verse Romans 7, verse 25, which for some reason gets forgotten constantly. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. We are still sinners. We are still in a body of flesh, and we sin. We can't stop sinning. We will never reach perfection in this life. No matter how sanctified you get, you're going to sin, and that sin is inside of you. That sinful nature is inside of you. So any look inwardly, you're looking to something that is at least influenced and corrupted by that sin. So how, why would you even look toward, towards conscience in any way, shape, or form? Now, yes, since I know conscience is there and conscience is made up by the fact that I am created in the image of God, so I'm a moral being. Okay, great. I've got this sense of morality. Now, what I need to do is I need to instruct that sense of morality in a true morality, which is not something I feel, it's right here in God's word. So I got to memorize it. I got to study it. I got to read it. And the more I can, I can add that moral part of my being, God's word, great. Oh, I know what else my conscience is made up of. Not only am I a moral being, but God's law has been written on my heart. So I need to memorize God's law. I need to study it. I need to make sure I correctly understand it. And the more I instruct my conscience, in the word of God, the more sensitive it will be to either hopefully motivate and push me to do right and condemn me when I do wrong, but it is not an infallible guide. It may excuse when it should be condemning and it may be condemning when it should be excusing. It's not the Pope. I reject the Pope. I reject the uh, aboriginal vicar of Christ. I reject it. 
I, I, men doing what is right in their own eyes is condemned and looking to conscience is horrible. The vicar of Christ. Okay. If I, if I want an earthly representation of Christ, Christ in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. There in a sense was Christ in flesh, but then he left. He ascended back to the father, but he gave his written word. Here is the vicar of Christ in a sense. Here is the, the word of God. Infallible. That's what I look to. I, I, I just think this, it just doesn't work. I know I'm going to get so much pushback on all of this. I know that I'm walking into ground where everyone's going to say, you're crazy, you're a heretic, but you call me a heretic, call me crazy. You just keep listening to the inner voice inside of you. And I just think it's ridiculous. I just think, I think you're just going to end up justifying what you want to do and excusing what you don't want to do. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at, there's all other kind of words I wanted to look up, but there you have it. That's just a, a crazy con- concept that conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ, the original vicar of Christ, the, the indigenous vicar of Christ is the human conscience. Yeah. Just, just, uh, I mean, just, just, just open up your Bible. Forget me. Just go from Genesis to Revelation. And every time you see people doing what they think is right, how does it turn out? Israel thought it was right to say, nope, not going into the promised land. We're going back to Egypt. They thought it was right. How many times in the Bible where they thought what they were doing was right? They thought it was right. They were wrong. Thinking, feeling it doesn't make it so. That's the one thing I, I don't know. Maybe you trust yourself more than, than I do. I put it this way. I don't trust myself at all. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't, I, I, this is what I feel about me inwardly. I'm an absolute total dumpster fire, train wreck, sinful, ungodly, rebellious human being. I cannot trust myself. I don't listen to myself. And I've got to have something external to myself. And I've got to be honest with myself because I will even convince myself of things that are not actually the case. I may convince myself, well, you know, I don't think this situation is that dangerous or I think that this is a perfectly okay situation. Well, I I don't really think it's that bad. I mean, I don't feel, and, and I can just go, I can rationalize all day. But man, the one thing I do have is I can pick up, maybe, maybe this is why Christianity is so appealing to me. It's not this trying to figure out some inner voice nonsense. It's like, here it is. All right. So, for example, all right, man, uh, a lot of people, just, just take for example, man, all the people I hang out with every Friday, they all drink. Well, should I drink? Well, let me read the Bible. Well, the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. Okay. Well, I know the one thing, I know this to be true. If I never drink, I can never get drunk. Hmm. That, that seems to, that makes some sense. Okay. The Bible has gobs of warnings about wine being a mocker and, and whoever is deceived thereby is a fool and, and it, warning after warning. And anytime alcohol is involved, it seems bad things happen, right? I mean, you get alcohol involved, next thing you know, Noah's got no clothes on because alcohol. 
Next thing you know, Lot's having sexual relations with his wife because of alcohol. I mean, I'm, every time I see alcohol, bad thing. The, the Corinthian church, they were having alcohol with their communion and for their communion and they were getting drunk. Every time alcohol seems to show up, bad things happen. Not in every single case. Okay. That, that gives me, that, that, that gives me some at least, ooh, I, I mean, I may need to be careful here. Who cares what I feel? Who cares what I think? All right. Now, let me just, now let's just take another step. Let's just look at this reasonably. Logically, let's look at the world. Well, how many people suffer with alcoholism? How many marriages are falling apart? Sexual assaults have occurred because of alcohol, domestic dispute. Okay, well, this probably tells me that alcohol is probably something I want to really, really question. Who cares how I feel? I don't look inwardly. I look externally. Like, I... Maybe that's why I love the Christian... I love Christianity because it's like here... I don't look inwardly. I look externally. I look to God's word. God determines right and wrong. I don't. God tells what, what's right and wrong, and it doesn't matter what I feel. He doesn't care about my feelings. God doesn't say, hey, I'm going to say this is wrong, and, and I'm really worried about how you can feel about this. He doesn't care. In fact, Christianity is all about dying to self, denying self, following Christ, not following self. It's all... Death to self, death to self, death to self. What is in the human heart? The human heart is deceptive above all things. It, it, it seems like the Bible would always push you to look outward, not inward. And then here, the Catholic Catechism is, listen to that voice inside and you'll hear the voice of God. And it's going to tell you, it's going to give you the moral quality of what you're getting ready to do, what you're doing, or what you've already done. That's how you can judge it. No, I can't judge it based off that. Oh, it's the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Okay, I, I'm just, oh man. Yeah, and then paragraph 1780 seems to go, forget semi-Pelagian, it seems to go full-blown Pelagian, but that's a whole different uh, problem. All right, we've got to stop there. I, you can hear my frustration. You can hear my frustration. It, it just, I, 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 I just have a hard time with the theology of conscience. I just have all day problems, all kinds of problems with it. I just really do. To me, it's, it's literally, it feels like, it really feels like, you know, looking up your horoscope. It's just like, and it's even, no, the horoscope is at least external from you. So it's not even a horoscope. It's just like, so what do I feel like today? What do I feel? It's just about, you know, I, 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 it's just some, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I'll, I'm going to stop right there. You can email me your disagreements to newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I will say this. If your conscience is the aboriginal Pope and you've got your Pope inside of you and you listen to your Pope, I'm just going to tell you, you probably, probably need to get a new Pope. That's all I've got to say. Because your Pope is, is pretty much garbage. I think you need to look at something outside of yourself. I think you need a new Pope. And I think it's right here. It's the word of God. That's my view. All right, I'll stop right there. God bless.